It's the Overthinking It Podcast Supplement. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I would like to welcome you all with great enthusiasm and much uh, fanfare to a special bonus podcast supplemental this week. This is Fenzel. This is going to be a very super special one-on-one conversation that I'm very excited about. But i got to give you a little bit of backstory before we get going. Before Fast and the Furious 6 came out, I'd never seen any of the Fast and the Furious movies I had two days that were set aside to do this that had certain activities set for them, including work. I knew I had X amount of time, and I wanted to watch all the Fast and the Furious movies to be prepared for Fast and the Furious 6. But after doing the math, I realized that I had to skip one of them. I put out the hue and cry to some friends on the internet, and I got some mixed advice. I decided, I made the fateful decision to skip... Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Now, I know what you're thinking. Pete, you must be crazy. Why would you skip the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift? Of all the Fast and the Furious movies, uh, which one do you skip, Hannah? Uh, four. You, you skip four? Yeah, you skip Fast and Furious. <laughs> all right, okay. I was also going to think you could also skip two, but you oh. skip four. You can skip either of those. But anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, we're, yeah. I'm getting ahead of us. I'm getting ahead of us. The point is that we did a Fast and the Furious 6 podcast with all the overthinkers, and something was missing. And I think what was missing was the full picture, the, the total view of the franchise. So not only did I go back and watch Tokyo Drift, and boy was it great, but I have recruited for all of your guys' enjoyment, and, and much to my pleasure and my great gratitude, the, uh, one of the, the greatest, the world's greatest authority, uh, bar none, on the Fast and the Furious franchise. And I'll introduce her. Thank you. Yes, of course. I say it without hesitation. Uh, and, um, and I will introduce her in the same way that I introduce all of these podcasts when I host them, which is with a question of the week. Oh, by the way, blanket spoiler alert for all the Fast and the Furious movies. Every single one. Every even sing- parts of seven. Yeah, even parts of seven, which we already know about because we have the world's greatest authority, foremost authority on the subject, with us here today. So panel, panel of two. Yes. Tell me something that isn't a 10-second race. Oh, boy. Um, I mean, a lot of things. A banana, um, (laughs) uh, a chainmail bracelet, (laughs) a a pile of unused Q-tips that have fallen on the ground, but you can't use them even though they're unused because they've been on the ground. Um, But one thing that is definitely not a 10-second race is um, a, a heist Ooh. Yeah. Heist, they require planning. They require execution. This, by the yeah. way, is the voice of Hannah Full. Hannah Full, comedian extraordinaire. Uh, are there any professional qualifications or ways to self identify that you'd like to share with us? Um, I worked at a video store for five years, mm-hmm. uh, way after video stores were a thing. So, but yeah. while the Fast and the Furious was a thing, I believe. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. After the first two, I worked when I worked there when Tokyo Drift came out on. Uh, DVD, I think. No, actually, probably after. So in between, I think, Tokyo Drift and Fast Five. So, and that was probably playing in the background at least a little bit of some of that time that you were there, I was just... Oh, during a lot of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> awesome. Hannah Hannah's a, a dear friend of mine, and also I don't lie when I tell you that this is somebody that we want to have on this podcast because I always I always say in overthinking it that you never want to apologize for what you love. That's really what this site is all about, and that's what all you guys listening are. It's what that's all about. Uh, and upon talking with Hannah about the Fast and the Furious, I heard just how much uh, she loved it, and I was really well, excited. This happened because you said to me that you had recorded this podcast, and I was so excited. And then you just sort of casually let it slip that you had skipped Tokyo Drift because your <laughs> friends had told you to. And I was like, and I, I wasn't trying to be funny. I was like really serious, and I was like, Pete, I'd wish you, I wish you'd come to me first. <laughs> Because I have put a lot of thought into what you can skip and what you can't. And, like, never in a million years can you skip Tokyo Drift. You just can't. It's not... It's It has changed the face of this franchise. And it... Everything revolves around it at this point. Uh, uh, Well, we'll get that. I'll give my answer quickly to the question of the week. And I'm going to say friendship. Friendship is not a 10-second race. This is, of course, in reference to the Fast and the Furious, you know, line, one-liner that gets said in pretty much all the movies, right? Which is, this ain't no 10-second race. Which is is usually sort of... uh, saying the car race we are about to do is longer than previous ones but it's also <laughs> but it's also saying because they're never just talking about the cars that uh that this race is the precursor to some sort of relationship right, right? exactly like, yeah like good every race is important Mm-hmm. And it means something to both parties involved. Right. And this is across the Fast and the Furious franchise, which is why we're talking about the Fast and the Furious and we're not necessarily talking about Torque. Although, I guess, it's, uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on Torque, real quick. Oh my god, a million thumbs up. How many <laughs> thumbs can I possibly have? I put that many thumbs up for Torque. Oh, Torque is wow. incredible. Oh, man. That's the Ice Cube riding motorcycles movie, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, where, where they actually have, like, scenes where they kung fu fight with motorcycles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> motorcycle kata spectacular so okay so hannah give us the rundown tell us uh tell us what give you about give us your high level opinion high level evaluation initial statement about the fast and the furious franchise and tell us give us a little background for those of us who might not be familiar with the history why tokyo drift is important so i mean tokyo drift was the beginning of the sort of like new life that the franchise got so the first two movies the first one was directed by uh, rob cohen who uh, had directed before that Skulls, or The Skulls, uh, the movie about... um... There's no middle ground with friendship, Hannah. (laughs) That movie played for a year at my college campus. I watched it twice in the theater. Uh, I'm not surprised (laughs) thinking about uh, your alma mater. Um, And he had also directed, which I think actually makes a lot of sense, a lot of episodes of Miami Vice. Oh, like the reboot with uh, Jamie Foxx? No, 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 like the original oh, show. Oh, the old one. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. The reboot with Miami with uh, Jimmy Fox was directed by Michael Mann. Oh, okay. Have you ever seen it? No, I never saw it. That movie is great. Uh, oh, because it wasn't a TV show. It was a movie. That's right. Yeah, it was a movie. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, it was it was very excellent. Mm-hmm. I think they might also drink Coronas without limes in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, that's, that's that, for another day. That's his so then, uh, Easter egg that he puts in all his films, right? His, exactly. Coronas without limes. <laughs> So the second movie, then, Too Fast, Too Furious, is directed by John Singleton, which is hilarious yeah. in a lot of ways. Yes. And so then the third one doesn't have any of the original stars. Paul Walker's not in it. Vin Diesel's not in it. They bring on Justin Lin to direct it, who had directed um, Better Luck Tomorrow, which was like kind of an independent uh, crime drama about high school kids in L.A. And 
he has since directed every movie he directed that he directed fast and furious fast five and furious six right. which is the canon title for fast and furious Six. <laughs> right 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 as we discussed in the podcast previously but i am not surprised to know that uh that you're deeply familiar with it yeah. Excellent. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so so Tokyo Drift is the one that kind of – it's both kind of a reboot. See, that's the reason I thought I could skip it is because it, it drops the characters that had been in the previous movies and who are in all of the other movies. And I had assumed that the Fast and the Furious franchise and the story is about the people. Right, like it's about the 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 car racers, and it follows right. the adventures. Like the Indiana Jones movies are about Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. Like the Star Wars movies are about Luke Skywalker or Anakin Skywalker or whoever. The person is the through line. Um, but I don't think that that really. I mean, the lesson of Tokyo Drift is that doesn't really turn out to be true with Fast and the Furious to to, to a certain extent. Well, um, except that it is still about the people because, but they bring in a new character in that in a uh, with Han. Yeah. Who is not even the main character of Tokyo Drift, but ends up being kind of central to the sort of future of the whole franchise. Right, 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 exactly. He shows up in 4, 5, and 6, and the big reveal with 6 is that everything that's happened to this point is kind of a prequel to uh, to to Tokyo Drift. That the, yes. end, the events at the end of Furious 6 are contemporaneous with the en- events at the end right. of Tokyo Drift, and it's implied that the future of the franchise will somehow yeah. jump forward from that point. So, Pete, I don't want to be a jerk, but it's only a reveal if you didn't see Tokyo Drift first. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, otherwise, the whole time you've known that Han was going to die. Exactly. Right? Yeah, so, yeah. so when he shows up in 4, um, because in, in Tokyo Drift, you see Vin Diesel comes by at the end, and he mentions that they used to be friends, and they used to roll together. And at the beginning of 4, you see them pulling off heists in uh, the Dominican Republic together. Mm-hmm. And so you know that four is now a prequel to three, and they just kept going from four. Yeah. It, it was really interesting to watch it after, to watch Tokyo Drift after I'd seen all of it, because you have to think that that parts of Han's character as they are in Tokyo Drift uh, had different kind of intentions than what happens in all of the rest of the movies. Like, I, I don't really believe, and maybe you have a different opinion of it, but I don't really believe that Justin Lin set off to make like the Babylon 5 of car racing stories, <laughs> where it's just like there's going to be five movies, and they're going to tell this nonlinear narrative that's going to like jump back, and there'll be time travel, and everything will be explained at the end, and it'll, you know, and, and that I know what's going to happen to this Han character all the time. So, like, one of the big things in, in, in a Tokyo Drift, you know, Han is this mentor figure who works alongside this sort of nephew of the Yakuza in like a chop shop sort of situation or like a like a car a car driving place and he also runs kind of a kind of a flop house hotel for models and does parties and stuff. Uh, and it turns out that he's been stealing from the Yakuza and and that and that causes all sorts of problems near the end of Tokyo Drift. And and sort of looking at the events that follow uh, or proceed, depending on how you look at it, you know, is it in character for Han to have been stealing from the Yakuza while he was working for them, or at least working for their relatives? Um, well, his whole point in that, though, is that everybody steals. That it's, right. that That's actually sort of an accepted part of the way that they do business. Mm-hmm. Like, he's actually shocked when he gets, like, quote-unquote caught, mm-hmm. because he's like, yeah, I thought everybody knew that. It's just what you do. You know, his sort of opinion is that they're all criminals. They're all a lot of the money is stolen. And Mm -hmm. so he's essentially following the rules that are set up for them and for their business. Right, right, right. And so in this, this is also kind of a little bit of a death wish, at least, is a little in character for Han, who at this point has lost his wife uh, or at least his fiance. 
Right. right. Like, and actually, so you know that technically it's also a sequel to Better Luck Tomorrow. Really? It all ties together with his <laughs> earlier film as well. Yeah. So, um, which was Justin Lin's, the movie that Justin Lin made before that, where the same actor, Sung Kang, played a character named Han. Mm-hmm. And in the end of that movie, um, she goes really wrong for these teenagers like really really wrong and han's character who sort of was the same that um the same way he was in tokyo drift kind of cool the one running the show um it decides that he needs to take off and is basically like i'm out of here i don't know where i'm going but i'm going somewhere far away so the implication being at the beginning of tokyo drift especially when they're having that conversation above the soccer field Mm -hmm. where he says that this is his mexico yeah the implication is that he has run away after accidentally murdering a, a teenager um, and is hiding out in Tokyo from that. And it's kind of retconned that he's hiding after his uh, his lady, lady love, died in a tank accident. No, a plane accident. <laughs> it was yeah. It was a it was a, a plane truck grappling hook. Yeah, accident. <laughs> Um, a self-sacrificial uh, uh, mo- movement. So, okay. So, talking about Justin Lin and the franchise for a bit, we've kind of touched on um, the two sides of Tokyo of, of Fast and the Furious, the franchise, which is, uh, and they sort of have a bridge in the middle, uh, I, I believe. And one side is the sort of action movie, heist movie, crime story, right? That happens m- that happens throughout, but is I guess the whole thing is sort of about crime to an extent. I mean, it starts off because you're trying to find the people who are robbing from these 18-wheelers, but it's a much sort of lower-level thing. And then the other side of it is the culture of street racing and how people who are kind of subaltern or on the, on the outskirts of society uh, find social bonds through uh, their fondness for cars um, and find sort of mechanisms for establishing uh, mutual respect in the, the sort of struggle of street racing that they, they endeavor upon with one another. Um, and I guess with, with, um, with, with Tokyo Drift, uh, one of the things that Justin Lin does, uh, and I, you can elaborate more on this because uh, I've obviously thought about it a lot, is the first Fast and the Furious movie is I, – I compared it after I saw it to something sort of like Kids in that it is a movie about our troubled youth. Right, mm-hmm. it is a movie about like sort of a youth culture where they really want to be living a better life than they are, but their parents are absent. In the case of Dom Toretto, he's an orphan, I believe. Right, his parents are both dead. Right, um, and and so he's trying to build a surrogate family in this environment where the street racing happens to be popular because it's what they have access to. Because he's not going to go to college, right? He's not going to be, you know, he's not going to have a kind of conventional job because it's not available to him because of his place in society. And so he still wants these things, right? And so it's a sort of cautionary tale, uh, also sort of like a humanizing tale about how it's a lot of the bad things that these young people are doing are a result of yearnings uh, that are sort of misdirected, not necessarily even misdirected, but that are different from ours and put them in a culture that's different from ours and a situation that's different from ours, but where they want things that we identify with, right? right. Um, they want like mutual respect and whatnot. And, and so the first... Fast and the Furious movie uh, does try to take a look into these sort of other cultures, but it fails pretty hard with regards to Asians. Oh, so, <laughs> so hard. Um, and they're heavily yeah, featured. It's, yeah. It's pretty painful, especially um, I had to, re- I had rewatched one recently. I hadn't mm-hmm. seen it in a couple of years. And especially after watching, you know, four and five and six, um, where I think one of the strengths of the later movies is actually the sort of like multiracial cast. 
past. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and the like very like the sort of lack of like gross racist jokes. Um, And then you go and you watch one and every single time you see the Asian bike gang, they're in front of like a Buddha statue or a pagoda. (laughs) And you're like, the whole time you're like, I don't, this is awkward. <laughs> and they interrupt them during that, like, very traditional meal. And, like, the the grandmother is upset. <laughs> the dad, what, slaps him in the face, yes. right? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. such a good scene. <laughs> but also awful. Yeah, but also awful. And so, to, so Justin Lin comes into the Fast and the Furious franchise with something to prove. Like, heavy exactly. duty. Yeah. He actually changed a lot about Tokyo Drift. Um because so I, I guess one of the stories that he tells is that he turned them down originally because he wanted a little bit more power um, because the original, I guess, Tokyo Drift, um, the original script called for a lot of women dressed as geishas um, and a lot of drifting by temples. And <laughs> he sort of called bullshit on that. And he right. was like, could I make a movie about actual Tokyo? Um, he was sort of, he was more drawn to those sort of postmodern um in a downtown Tokyo feel than the sort of weird old world Japan that who, whoever had written the original script um, had written in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really one of the things the movie's truly remarkable for is its total lack of Orientalism. Yeah. It, like, it really portrays the youth culture of Japan, uh, I would guess, closer to how it is, certainly as, as urban and young and interested in contemporary things, right? And, and also as in the movie, the, the people of Tokyo aren't the subaltern culture. They're not the exotic culture. They're portrayed exactly. as like the home culture. And it's, and it's, uh, it's Bama Boy. It's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> I, you know what? I, I, I just call him Lucas Black. Right, but um, I mean, his name is Sean Boswell. If we want to, Sean Boswell, Sean, right? Sean, Bo- Sean yeah. <laughs> and Sean is the exotic one, and it, it's almost like he's kind of an exoticized Southerner because he has this really thick accent mm-hmm. that is somewhat lacking credibility, I think. Although maybe it's for real, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but uh, but like he's the you know it's it's a there's so many fish out of water stories where the point is that the water is strange. And this is a fish out of water story where the point is that the fish doesn't fit in, right? right? Like, and, and and so like you know, Han is masculine and graceful, and like I would I would wager attractive in this movie. Um, he's not like a sort of yes. Mr. Miyagi figure. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and like even the character of the Drift King, the DK, uh, you know, he shows up and he's all dressed up like Dom Toretto in the first Fast and the Furious movie, right? He's got the black tank top. Um, mm-hmm. I was really struck. In Tokyo Drift, one of the moments that really there's a bunch of moments in Tokyo Drift that really struck me in their in terms of their place in the franchise and how they relate to what all of them are about. But one of the moments that really struck me is after the Drift King defeats Sean in the first race in the parking garage, right? And this is this is the race where there where Sean realizes that he can't drift. Like there's been some foreshadowing where he his gets in a car race and he can't take tight turns in his giant car, right. uh, and so then that's like when he's racing the kid from Home Improvement, which is pretty funny. <laughs> um, not Jonathan Taylor Thomas, right. the other kid from Home the Improvement. The other kid, yeah. um, under the soundtrack of Ba Wada Ba by, uh, by Kid Rock. Yeah, <laughs> which is a spectacular chase scene and just a, a wonderful little cultural step. That whole place seems weirder than Tokyo does in the movie. Just, yeah, and yeah. I, think that's, I think that's purposeful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but like when the Drift King finishes his race and beats Sean really badly because Sean is constantly hitting the walls of the parking garage because he can't take the turns correctly, uh, he takes the keys and he gives them back to his friend who I think he borrowed the car from, mm-hmm. and he just he just smiles and he has this smile on his face of like total satisfaction and just like total joy. 
right? It's not like a sneering Cobra Kai kind of smile where he's happy that the other guy failed, but it's like him in his element with his friends. Like right. this is this is like a kid who happens to be a nephew of Sonny Chiba, right? Which is crazy that he's in this movie as yep. the, as the sort of Dick Tracy Yakuza guy. Um, but this is a kid who wants to be with other human beings in a way that kids generally want to be with other human beings, and because of circumstances, turns out to be in a, fa- a fairly villainous. Um, like, relatively speaking. Although, really, what does he really do wrong in this movie other than just, like, handle situations poorly and fly off the I handle? I mean, he's kind of a dick to his girlfriend. That's very true. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. that's not really cool. No, no, no. Um, but to be fair, she's she is emotionally cheating with the new kid in school. So, <laughs> you know. You should just break up with her. It's not a reason to be cruel to someone. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Their whole relationship with their family is weird, though. Is the it like is. like the girl? What is it? The girl's mom was a prostitute, mm-hmm. and they took in the girl uh, to raise her. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why. Um, I, I think the implication is that it was like that she was the sort of bastard child of his uncle or something. Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. So they're sort of semi semi closely related. Oh, you know still, what? what? I realize I never thought about it that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're dating. But it's like, yeah, uh, yeah it's kind of weird. But well, he's maybe more, he was the pimp. Yeah, probably. It's part of his operation or something like that. But still, it's like he has a certain possessiveness over the woman that is, that is sort of analogous to the relationship of her mother with this guy and also is somewhat brotherly but in a twisted bad way. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, so those things are definitely bad. He's definitely the bad guy. He's definitely the bad guy in the movie. Uh he just as, to, to, but he's slightly more credible than the the first bad guy in the first Fast and the Furious movie. Yeah, he doesn't um, just shoot people in the middle of the street for no reason. Right, right, right. Um, but I mean, but this shows uh, this shows what function the car races have in these movies. Uh, I mean, the, the first one. I mean, Paul Walker just sort of lays it all out on the table when he says, "You know, if I win, I get the ten thousand dollars and I get the respect." Right. right. Exactly. And so, and, and I mean, for other people, they say it in different ways. But I mean, you pretty much would say that's kind of how it progresses through most of the movies, right? Or at least it, well, all of them, I think, right? Um, yeah, I would. I mean, I think that it's, it's all, almost always about the respect, right? right. Um, which is why it's a big deal in Fast Five when Dom loses on purpose. Oh, yeah. Because even though he's trying to do it, you know, he's he's doing a thing for his sister and his, you know, his unborn baby niece, you know, he's it's disrespectful to Brian that he has done this. Interesting, interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, that moment in Fast Five, as it being that hard for him. Um, yeah, that is interesting. I, I think the moment in Fast Five that I think about in context of this is how even his fight with The Rock is about establishing a kind of relationship of mutual respect with The Rock, and less about the sort of urgency of the punchy punch and like the play class spitting that happens in that in that particular fracas. Um, what, I always, what I think is really interesting about all of these movies is how interconnected they are mm-hmm. and how little they explain some of it. Um, the the fight with The Rock, I feel like, is a perfect example because in the moment of that fight, they play up the moment with the crowbar mm-hmm. as if it's this really big dramatic moment. But if you haven't seen the first movie in a while, you have no idea that it's because like Dom almost beat a guy to death and that's why he had to become an underground street racer instead of a respectable stock car racer. Right, right, that's right. Because he, he takes a crowbar to the guy who, who forced the accident that killed his father. Exactly, and right. that's why he, and he's banned from the stock, from the track, and mm. that's why he's, 
you know, uh, racing, racing on the streets, but they don't explain that at all. And yet they still put a lot of, um, dramatic, um, tension into that moment. So you sort of know it's important, but you don't really know why. And they do that a lot. There's a lot of sort of like callbacks to earlier movies Mm -hmm. that they don't always explain super fully. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, I mean, you know, when Lucas Black says at the end, when Sean says at the end, that this ain't no 10-second race, it's, well, how does he even know that phrase? Um, exactly. But, I mean, also the Coronas with Lime. The, the the obvious one is the Grace scene that's in almost all the movies, where they yes. all say Grace over the meal. Because that scene really jumped out at me in the first Fast and the Furious movie, uh, as I'm sure it jumped out at everybody. Yep. Um, definitely, as something that was meaningful. And I guess this is sort of where we come to in Fast and the Furious 6, or Furious 6, Um which is the the battle between the two mirror images of the team, one in which Vin Diesel cares about the histories of all the people as they've been together, and one in which all of the people are valued for their skill sets but are otherwise dispensable, right? So like, it's really Justin Lin sort of defending his the way that he's made the franchise. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Like, it's a it's a metaphor for his films. It is, but I think it's even more than just a metaphor for, than than not just, but then a metaphor for the films. It's also trying to give us a, a sense for the ethic that goes into the movies. Uh, like, what do they value as good? Uh, right, because because there are good guys and bad guys in all these movies, and these are sort of heroic kind of epic movies about the foundation of a society, right? And the society and this family that keeps getting made, right? This it's like a family epic about, and that's what they keep referring to it as. And um, one of the sort of issues with antihero stuff is um, you make the hero cool by making them bad or amoral or grizzled in some way, right? But then you sort of end up a little bit adrift, and you're like, okay, well, what is the story actually about? Right, and and what is the sort of resonance of this story with our real lives, and and so that's a challenge that a lot of kind of antihero movies face. I think personally, in antihero stories, is is you know what is this? How is this relevant to me? A lot of the time, it, the antihero has to turn at the end in a way that connects with us because then we understand what's good about them or what we value about it. The antiheroes in the Fast and the Furious, to me. Um, it's not the same in that they're like rejecting part of themselves that's good. It's not like Hugh Jackman in the X-Men movies where he's like really wrestling with like his heroic nature, right? Like like Hugh Jackman in the in the cage fighting and like the first X-Men movie, right? It's like he's leaving it all behind and he's like he knows he can fight and he can inflict pain on people and like that's what he's looking to do. And then, you know, Professor X has that corny Dolby surround sound scene where he's talking all around his head and he kind of realizes he needs to open up and change. The Characters in the Fast and the Furious uh, that are that are sort of family characters, of whom I would count, you know, Vin Diesel, Paul Walker, Michelle Rodriguez, you know, Han, Sean, you know, Lucas Black to to a great degree, and maybe he'll be in the next one. They they start the movie good. The things that make right. them bad are not that they're resisting their better nature. Right, but they start good in unconventional ways. They start good, but they're pro- they're troubled, but they're violent, but they're thieves. But there are things about them that are good and that we like. And and it's one of the challenges I think of the movies, uh, watching them, and that the movies pose to you is to nail down what it is about these people that is good. And one of them I think is that they value the histories of the people around them, and, and they're sort of writing their culture as they go. They're building the society that they weren't left from by their parents who all abandoned them at one point or another. Right, like they're they're 
they're creating a world that, that we want to live in and we sympathize with their goals. And that's kind of what they all have in common is, you know, across all of the movies. And that's kind of what Vin Diesel is arguing for when he wants Michelle Rodriguez back from the British guy at the end, Fast and Furious 6. Right. A lot of, I mean, almost none of them are in positions. I think you mentioned this earlier because they chose to be there. Right. You know, Dom didn't choose to be a street racer. He, he was a racer and then he was shunned. Um, and, and that was his only option. Mm -hmm. Um, and even I think Paul Walker in the first movie, you know, he wants to be a cop and he wants to do the right thing, but he is sort of forced into this um, undercover role. Um, and throughout the movie, you know, he's really pushed by his by his superiors to make choices that he doesn't agree with and that he's not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Like, I think at some point they give him 36 hours to take down Dom Toretto. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, why don't you just give him 48? Yeah. Like, He's sleeping for 12 of those. Give him a break. It it reminds me of the first scene... Uh, and this again, this also goes back to the mission of overthinking it. I think it's something that I this maybe this is one of the reasons why I connected with this movie so much. The very first scene of the very first Fast and the Furious movie is Paul Walker taking out that car in that parking lot, right? Yeah. And, and it's this like really intense kinetic scene that just it shows it it just shows an eye that just loves cars yep. and loves the speed of cars and the shape of cars and their capacity for movement and their relationship with flat surfaces. And it's just like it's just a love letter to cars. Is that first scene in that movie and there's uh definitely there's a scene in tokyo drift where uh the scene where where sean realizes that bow wow is into cars right oh, do you mean the hulk scene well, the, it's the whole there's a hulk scene there's it's i guess there's a two-part scene right because it's the first scene where where uh bow wow is trying to sell him like electronics like yeah. oh you should have a laptop everybody has a laptop right and he's like oh, I don't need a laptop he's like you should get a cell phone everyone needs a cell phone he's like well whatever I don't know anybody I don't need a cell phone and and then he, and it's like I want to buy your steering wheel right and it's like oh no that's for me and he's like oh and and at that point he sees the beginning of a potential connection because he starts the movie really really loving cars and it's not something that has a reason it's just it's sort of in his nature right like or at least at this point it's second nature to him i mean even if it does have a reason which which what like his dad really loves cars too clearly because his dad has the car that he scavenged off the base but it doesn't even need that kind of psychologizing like as we said this isn't a franchise that's constantly explaining itself um it's one that kind of presents you with the thing as it is happening and challenges you to to keep up it fast it quickly and furiously endeavors upon its (laughs) measures um but like and then it's followed by the scene where Sean is with Bow Wow by the cool rotating parking garage where they find the Hulk van. And you just see them sharing this sense of excitement. And, and it's childlike. But it's childlike yeah. in a way that an adult could be childlike too. Um, it's the kind of thing that you can build a relationship off of, build a family off of even, right? Like it's a great moment and a great story. Um, and it's something he shares with the Paul Walker character in the first Fast and Furious movie. Like back at the beginning of the podcast when I said that the movie isn't about following the individual people, which I sort of contradicted about it later i think what it's really following is it's like if the people if you want to think about it kind of in a in a in a like a physics kind of way the people as they pass through the fast and the furious movies are like particles mm-hmm. and but they are also sort of part of this wave right and the wave is kind of like the the energy of these people who all love cars and what they all share together and the culture that they build together that kind of persists despite the presence or absence of any one of them or all of them um right. you know I it's think- go ahead 
So there's a the scene a couple of scenes later that we talked about earlier where Sean destroys Han's car yeah. with that Han lends him yeah. and just destroys it and Sean asks him later you know he's like you you know why did you let me do that basically he was like you knew I was going to destroy that I didn't know how to drift and Han basically says like I have money I have cars what I need are people around me that I can trust and mm-hmm. I think that is sort of you know that says something about the whole franchise is that the cars are disposable you know the cars don't really make comebacks throughout the movies except sort of for dom's thing for american muscle Mm -hmm. um but even that i feel like they talked about that a lot in six and that it felt sort of out of place because it was the first time that they really talked about how much they love cars a lot of times before that it was just sort of assumed or it was or they talked about how they drove or how they raced and that was more important than the actual car right it was the relationship to the car that was important Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah i feel like a lot of it's balletic like a lot of what you find out about the characters relationships with their cars is communicated through the car driving scenes Mm-hmm. And like it's like how you know, the the feelings they have about it, like the sense of power, the sense of freedom, you know, like like there's almost a sense like like uh, the Paul Walker character, kind of the only time he ever thinks appears to be when he's behind the wheel of a car, right? Like yeah. he likes he likes to sort of like take shortcuts and and uh, and you can see him planning, right? Like his it, mind goes when he's behind the wheel of a car, and he always loves his nitrous. Oh yeah, <laughs> there is no nitrous in Tokyo Drift because there's too many corners. Exactly, <laughs> and there's no nitrous in five or six. I don't think. Right, right, right. There's there's like an energy drink. There's like a nitrous energy drink <laughs> reference at some point. Um, but yeah, but they do move away from car racing, but they don't move away from cars. And I think I was having another conversation with a mutual friend uh, Eric, a uh, friend of the podcast as well. Um, where we were talking, I was trying to, I was talking to him, and I, w- I was running into a bit of a barrier because I was trying to explain how the the action sequences, like the heist in Fast Five, right, is is similar to the car races that happen in Fast and the Furious one through three. Although Fast and Furious, the Too Fast Too Furious is tricky with regards because there it's like there's just a mob boss who's just saying like you should drive <laughs> fast for my amusement, right? And it's like it's like trying to trying to sort of synthesize these things, but it's kind of like the notable thing is that it's failing, right? Yeah. Like, the, the funny thing about, uh, the good thing about Too Fast, Too Furious is, like, how it fails at being the movie that it says it wants to be, and how, like, Tyrese is making fun of it the entire time. Um, but but at any rate, it's like, uh, like, um, when, when, because when Dom Toretto races cars, it's because he wants to, he loves racing, it's in his blood, it's something that he feels like is, is indispensable for who he is, right? And then, like, same thing when Sean goes, goes and he drives cars in Japan, it's like the one thing his dad tells him not to do, but he loves it so much that he can't stay away from it, right? Like, like literally immediately he yeah. goes out and drives cars. Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. It's not as, he doesn't even give it a day to try. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, later on in the, in the movies, when events sort of, become world sweeping and involve like people dying and great huge danger not that there isn't aren't people die in the previous ones but like when like the fate of the world is at stake it seems like the driving of cars quickly in various sort of semi-acrobatic ways would become less optional right it would become less something that you do because you love to do it and more a thing you do because you have to um 
like sort of looking at the events of the movies on paper, you would think that would be how it is. But I, I definitely feel like in watching these movies, there's a sense of glee and of sort of realization of the self in the way the car chases are communicated uh, that, that speaks to the racing attitude and the racing culture, even if it's not kind of like a, a sport. Um, right. I mean, there's, uh, I think the, the one racing scene in five is when they steal the four police cars. Mm hmm. And they have the race that Dom ends up um, throwing at the very end. And you see the characters, even the, the two that lost by the most, come in and they're all smiles. Yeah. Because for them, it's not, they don't so much care about losing a million dollars. You know, a million dollars out of 11 million is not a big deal to them. Yeah. But they just got to race. And yeah. that was, you know, they sort of feel, they, they clearly are like juiced up on adrenaline and excited and happy. Yeah, yeah. And even, the, even like dragging the safe around Rio and like smashing it into everything oh it's just such so much fun in that yeah right? like it's not something you know, yeah when i saw I, when i saw too fast too furious yeah. uh, i was remembering this while i was on my way home today to record this um i took my 1986 subaru hatchback and this is when it came out in 2003 mm-hmm. um and i took it on the mass turnpike <laughs> and i got it up to 90 miles an hour <laughs> And it it smelled like burning for like four days, oh. because it absolutely was not meant to go that fast. Uh, we we don't usually we don't have a uh, we don't have as much backup as we usually do. I like to make notes of like the notable things that I hear that are inspiring during the podcast. Uh, but I have to write down. I got it up to ninety miles an hour, and it smelled like burning for four days. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, I mean, that, that movie, I feel like Too Fast, Too Furious, I mean, John Singleton, right, is the director of Boys in the Hood, right? Yeah. And, and I feel like there are parts of Too Fast, Too Furious where he's trying to make it into kind of a social commentary. Mm-hmm. Most notably, the scene where the Spartacus scene, right, which is where like like uh, Paul Walker and Tyrese are trying to evade the mob boss, and Ludacris releases you know hundreds of cars, right, yeah. or dozens of cars, not hundreds, but dozens of cars. All of the fancy cars in Miami just flow out of this garage that Ludacris has been been keeping. And in this case, he's kind of capitalizing on the part of uh, Fast and the Furious that is about being subaltern, and as a and is is it sees it less as a kind of discursive phenomenon right this idea of um because we've I've talked a little bit we've talked a little bit about people who are trying to create a culture um by using certain things symbolically to achieve certain kinds of human relationship goals right it's like i've raced you therefore our relationship has changed um if you've raced in a way that i admire even if you lose i respect you we have a context for talking with each other right this is sort of like a discursive model for how these sorts of um subaltern societies might like become less subaltern but the singleton one is more marxist where it's like the people who race the cars and are on the fringes of society are necessarily in opposition to the fancy cuban like uh cubano drug lords or whatever right like that they are the underclass and that they are at war with the richer people who try to keep them on the fringes and they then by their numbers and by the fact that they're the ones who provide value can then sort of subsume them and 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 there's a material dialectic right where these different um aspects of these different sort of classes of people battle with one another but there isn't a lot of class warfare in the rest of the fast and the furious franchise which is no. one of the, no. it's i mean there's there's like sort of a sense of other right they're like yeah. you're either a racer or you're not whether or not you're a drug lord or you're you know the dss mm-hmm. um you are you are not a street racer and if you can't come into that scene and f- with someone who is because that and they do the same thing in two and in five um 
but sort of from the opposite sides of the law. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, and it's um so it, I think that's another reason why Tokyo Drift is really important in the in the franchise because ju- the values that Justin Lin pulls from the first Fast and the Furious movie and it heightens, you know, here I'm talking in improv parlance with an, Im- an improviser. <laughs> yeah. uh, we won't reveal it. Oh no, they know now. Um we we'll never tell them how many of the people on the podcast are actually improv comedians. A lot of- <laughs> <laughs> um you may think we're all professors only a couple of us are professors. Most of us are improv comedians. Uh, but, Some are both. Yes, that's true. Uh, but we'll never tell who. <laughs> um, but it's uh, but but Justin Lin pulled the things that he thought was important that he thought were important out of the first Fast and the Furious movie, which are the the sort of disjointed people trying to form family and legacy. It's almost like East of Eden to an extent, right? It's like you know, yeah. it's like then it's like I'm going to Tokyo uh, to start a new life. And, you know, there's people who hate me, and I have these sort of fundamental primordial battles with these people that I don't get along with, but I'm trying to build a legacy, right? And then, of course, it's not – it's much more fun than East of Eden. Right. Uh, <laughs> I would say he, he pulls more and more the farther he goes. Mm-hmm. Um, he pulls more from the previous movies with each successive movie. So I would say Six almost pulls the most yeah. because you, he brings Letty back mm-hmm. from the dead. Yeah. Um, and then he not only does that, he brings – brings back the guy who kills her you know they he goes back to la to you know visit that guy in prison mm-hmm. um yeah, no, so, I, yeah, definitely. Yeah. They, they definitely, and it's also because the the tagline on the poster was "All roads lead to this," mm-hmm. right? Which which you could read it superficially as saying this is the big event of the summer. Right, like, and also, there's going to be a whole bunch of different kinds of racing and driving things fast that is going to be in this movie, right? Like, or like a whole different kind of different ways in which you can actualize an action movie, and they're all going to exist in this one movie. But you can also see it as, you know, this is like this is like the Aeneid that looks back at a bunch of unrelated literature and like ties it all together into something that's supposed to motivate a culture, right? Like, or in this case, like provide for the future value of a franchise or a mythology, right? Like. Um, I mean, if we want to talk about kind of superhero movies and mythology, because uh, I think Fast and the Furious is kind of like it's in the same, it's swinging in the same ballpark as movies like The Avengers. I think definitely, uh, yeah, yeah, and like that's what it's going for, which is not what people would have thought back in two thousand and three when Too Fast Too Furious came out. Um, I mean, not. I remember particularly their jokes being like, being about how Dame Judi Dench was going to be in Triple the Fast, Triple the Furious. I think that was like a brunching shuttlecocks joke, which dates it as well. Um, wow. But I love that site. Your roommate plays the Indigo Girls was a wonderful animated, a flash animation. <laughs> but um, <laughs> just pulling these pulling these references out left and right. Wow. But no, but they're aspiring to myth making. Like they're trying to make a story that can te- that. that talks about a, a very specific sort of experience but that sort of makes it a major you know weight that exists in the culture and can be referenced to and that people can aspire to like they want dom toretto to be on par with iron man yes right? like, absolutely yeah and to do that, okay. you need to have your one where you clean everything up. You have to have your Crisis of Infinite Earths, basically. Yeah. Like, which, I mean, obviously, Fast 6 isn't that quite that much of a mess. But, um, but it definitely pulls together various things that have been out of continuity with each other and makes them all into a cogent place. And then, for some reason, hands the keys to the Saw guy, which I don't quite get. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I feel like 
it's like the season, like season five of Buffy, mm-hmm. where you know they they wrapped it up for themselves. They were like, "Listen, I know it's going to the WB or wherever it, or UPN yeah. after this season, but it's over for me." And here's the ending, and here's where Buffy dies, and it's over. And then they continued it on after that, and it was great. Um, and this is sort of like Justin Lin. This could be the end of this franchise, right? I mean, he. Yeah. He gave everybody kind of a nice ending. They have their baby. They're allowed back in the country. They they get back to the original house. They're having dinner there. Yeah. It's sort of this like nice, beautiful moment. I mean, except for Han, but Han was, you know, destined for tragedy from the beginning. Right, and we right. all knew that. Yep. Um, and so it, it sort of wraps everything up it, before the credits. Yeah. Like before the before the credits. Right. Right. Like before the Jason Statham scene. Right. Which which is the one which is like it's almost like it's like the first scene of the next movie mm-hmm. rather than the last scene of this movie, which is what they did from between Fast and Furious and Fast Five as well mm-hmm. with the the prison bus. Right, 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 right. It is interesting. I mean, the Avengers obviously uses this too, right, with its after the credit scenes. Um, but the Fast and the Furious ones they launch you right into the plot uh, rather than give you kind of a a reason. Why? I mean, I guess I guess it's not this. You don't have the same sort of many to one relationship. There's not like a relational relationship between. You're not going to make a bunch of spin off Fast and the Furious movies with all the different characters, and then like explain how they're all going to gather for one big car race. <laughs> um, although you could, and if you do, you owe us royalties because we came up with it first. I mean, um, in some ways, that is what like one or at least what two and three did, um, and even one because you know different characters in five and six come from all over the place. You know. Uh, obviously, Brian and Dom come from one, mm-hmm. but then um, Roman uh, Tyrese comes from two. So does Ludacris. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Han comes from three, as do, um, and then I don't even know where. I think um, the two guys who are in five, I think they come from four, from the beginning of four. Definitely the Gosh. girl. Definitely the, the Han's uh, future wife or future non-wife is the the sort of henchman of the bad guy in four. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's like representatives from all the movies that are there as if to form some sort of quorum as to say like we all approve of what is happening. Like all the previous movies have weighed in and we approve of this movie as it is happening. <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean like you know it's 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 myth making, it's family, it's culture forming, and of course like. One of the big things we talked about on the podcast a lot, uh, or at least on the site a lot, is how surprisingly popular it's been. Uh, because there has been uh, uh, really not a huge um, – like you could look at the Fast and the Furious franchise as a rather old-fashioned sort of movie in that it's a bunch of burly dudes and attractive women driving fast cars and getting in fights over stealing things in relatively contemporary cities. Right, like it's like it could be sort of an '80s-ish kind of action movie potentially. Right, right? like now, if you've seen them, you know that that's not really what they are. Right. Um, but it is not necessarily obvious how, like, what is the key difference, um, especially ahead of time, right? Because the Hollywood pro- prognosticators got it wrong significantly for both uh, Fast and Furious and Fast Five. Um, both under underestimating uh, like Vin Diesel's drawing power as a cultural icon, underestimating the excitement level of people seeing this franchise. I think the ethnic diversity is a big part of it. I was going to say, yeah, you, you really can't like. I think people ignore that, and that's mm-hmm. absolutely a reason why it's so successful. Yeah, uh, it's, it's just because like 
of the many people in the United States and around the world who feel maybe excluded from other action movies but see a connection in this one. Right. Yeah, and I mean that's um, the legacy of Justin Lin in here too, as he's reaching out to these people and showing exactly. Them, yeah. Um, and even like you know, in a movie like you know Transformers, that technically sometimes has a more ethnic cast, it's always talked about in a way that makes me very uncomfortable. Like yeah. you can't have a Spanish-speaking character without them saying some curse words in Spanish, and somebody being like, "Hey, no hablo español, man," and you're like, "Uh, why?" Yeah. <laughs> 2013. Jeez. Yeah. The um, I just I just recently finished watching the BBC Sherlock episodes that. Cur- Currently exist, oh, yeah. and there's a really uncomfortable one about China. <laughs> like, that episode is very hard to watch. Yeah, geez, like the Chinese acrobats and the yep. Order of the Lotus or whatever it is, and it's oh. just like these are not people that you're portraying here. Um, but yeah, that is interesting. I mean, it's like it raises a lot of questions. Like it's like the Ripley problem too, right? Which is like because um, you know, like Ripley having originally been written as a man. Uh, is the character is turned into a woman. Uh, this could be an explanation for why Ripley isn't always talking about being a woman, because there was a bunch of dialogue that was written when the characters was considered to be a man, and as such, like there was not pressure to make Ripley constantly talk about woman things, because for some reason people feel like they have to do that when the character is a woman. But at the same time, Alien and Aliens, and to a lesser extent Alien 3, and to a, a extent that I'm not clear commenting on Alien Resurrection, are about like distinctly female issues right Right. like about pregnancy and motherhood like things that a male ripley character just would not be able to participate in so clearly the change means something right so it's like the question is okay i'm writing an a a, i'm writing a tokyo drift character i'm writing the drift king um what do i make him right uh and how and how does this have to do with actual japanese people and other asian people that are going to see themselves in this character um that's one of the things you get, at least from having, you know, an Asian director who probably doesn't feel this weird pressure that I think a lot of white directors do to write them as symbols of their race and instead just writes them as people, which they are. Yes, yes. Um, there was, there's actually a really great um, video of Roger Ebert, um, who, by the way, really liked... Fast and Furious 1, 2, and 3, and very much disliked 4. Which I think little. is fair, because 4 is yes. is bad and, and dull and sad and boring. Um, but <laughs> um, so, but there, was a, there was a Sundance screening of Better Luck Tomorrow, mm-hmm. um, and afterwards there was a Q&A, and somebody uh, stood up and asked how Justin Lin, um, why he felt okay portraying Asian teenagers in this really bad light? And and didn't he think that he should um, set a better example? Um, and Roger Ebert stands up and he's like, <laughs> s- like spit flying out of, his, out of his mouth. And he's like, you would never ask that of a white director. And he's just furious. <laughs> People are like cheering. Um, and it's like, it's a pretty great video. Um, and I think, uh, I think that that says a lot. And I think a lot of, a lot of Hollywood, when they write, characters when they write non-white male characters feel this need to have them represent something that they actually fundamentally don't understand yeah um and as such they come off um as as false Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's the rock character i feel is an interesting it is an interesting example of this because he has so many characteristics 
and he appears right in Fast Five and in Furious Six. He has so he has so many characteristics of a stock action movie character, and yet is so conspicuously absent of the characteristics of a stock like Samoan action movie character. Yes, right. Like like he's very eloquent, and he's always the guy with clever lines that he's talking about, and he's also like very conservative and kind of down home. Like he likes home cooking, right? Like he's like country, right? Like he's like in which makes sense because his character is probably from the country right like he's like he's it, the fact that he is a you know a guy that is involved in federal law enforcement and as such like that informs who he is more than the fact that he's like a giant tattooed Samoan man right and like and the movie creates this character for him like the, the discussions between it's it's almost it's like there's like a Bechtel test situation here right where it's like could you have like when The Rock and Tyrese are talking like there's like a checklist of things that they shouldn't be just talking about and one of them is like the butts of women another one is like stealing things or like jewelry right like (laughs) and it's like please don't talk about any of these things like have a conversation about something else right Right. and like you know tyrese's fondness for candy bars is kind of (laughs) like i mean because it's authentic like it feels authentic and it also kind of feels specific to that character's cultural experience right like it's like there is a commentary in there somewhat about race because it's like where he grew up he didn't have access to these kinds of candy bars very often um there was you can watch another recap on overthinking it this week where we talk about another character who talks about candy bars but hannah hasn't watched that yet so i'm not going to talk about it um Uh, i'm talking about mad men don't tell hannah don't tell hannah what happens on mad men but it involves candy bars Uh, (laughs) you have like you have like 10 episodes like 12 episodes to watch before you get to the candy bars um it's a non-spoiler I mean, um, there's there's a lot about snacking in these movies. Yes! Like, one of Han's major characteristics is that he's always eating potato chips. Yes, I noticed that when he was in the elevator, and the very first time that we see him, right, like, he's he's just snacking away, snacking snackin', away. Snacking, snacking. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this, I felt like, was also kind of foreshadowing that he was going to be stealing from the Yakuza, because he's, like, dipping his hand in there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he just can't, he can't help himself. It just feels normal to him. But it's also, I think, um... It's kind of cool. I mean, maybe this is sort of how I read it, and maybe I'm mistaken here, but um, watching – like the role of I, – I compare it to the role of food in anime – um, where, where like the char- the the protagonists in anime are often like very very slightly built males who like eat a ton of food, right? Yep. There's like very very skinny guys who whenever they get the opportunity to eat just like gorge themselves. And then I think the main reason for this is that like there's been ten years of deflation in Japan and a culture that doesn't really value gluttony, and as such, food is expensive and not eaten in large quantities, right? And so it's like kind of an extraordinary thing to do to eat a ton, and something that he, that like a sort of larger than life character might do right like or also it also shows that the person is like just just like totally off base with the people around them like different from the people around them in some way that they're eating all the time because there's just there's not like tons and tons of courses for everybody um like i love it in naruto how they're always talking about who's going to pay for the ramen it's like it's like it's like one of the only it's one of the only like shows where it's like hey like food is a non-trivial part of our ninja budget people like you know we need to like like we live in japan huh we there's like tight tariffs on food here like you can't necessarily uh do that stuff and so the fact that han is always eating i think is kind of part of what makes him cool because uh, like that's not something that everybody does if it were in america like and he was just eating potato chips all the time you'd be a joke 
Um, right, and it's 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 also I think that they use the physicality of how he eats the potato chips. Mm. It's a very easy way to sort of show his his sort of whole energy, right? Because right. it's always sort of slow and languid. Uh, there's never any, you know, he's never like looking to see how many there are. Mm-hmm. He takes one at a time. Yeah. There's no rush. Like he knows he has all the time in the world to eat that bag of potato chips, and when he's done, he will just eat another bag of potato chips. <laughs> And he doesn't really care. Whereas it's totally different from Roman, who is like desperate to get that candy bar in that scene where yeah. um, where Hobbs shoots out the uh, the vending machine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it says something very different about his character, and then it says something totally different. The Rock always wants his dessert first. Yeah. <laughs> It's right, and, but it's it, but it's funny because it's also all things that children might do, yeah. Right, is like wanting dessert first, uh-huh. eating lots of potato chips, eating a lot of candy. Um, and I think that there's something about um, God, probably something that Spielberg said in one of like a bazillion interviews he's ever done about how awesome he thinks he is. Um, not, not that he's unjustified, mind you. Like the man's done a lot of good stuff, but um, uh-huh. but like talking about seeing the world through the eyes of a child is kind of part of of cinematic storytelling. Um, there's certainly a bias in, in, in a bunch of genres of film to like portray adults as children in certain ways, um, but one of the big ones is that like the capacity for large images to inspire awe, right? Like the relative size of us to the movie screen puts us in the position of being children again to an extent because this thing is so big that's happening in front of us and we don't usually confront things that are this big that are happening like a big like I, like I love like you know what it reminds me of is it reminds me of those videotapes those VHS tapes and DVDs they used to sell on TV where it's just like watch giant trucks yeah. right like <laughs> Like, the biggest earth movers, the biggest steam shuffles, like... <laughs> Tuesday. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. The other thing is is that there's very little, after the first movie, um, and a little bit in the second one, there's very little sex. Yeah. Um, so the fantasy is kind of fulfilled in other ways, right? Because, mm. I mean, the Brian and Mia have sex in the first one, and so do Dom and Letty. Um, and then he has a sort of, And they of have like, sex once, and Mia gets pregnant and Letty dies. <laughs> Right, exactly. Um, And then in the second one, you know, Brian sort of seduces Eva Mendes with his eyes while he's driving. Right. uh, In, like, what is pretty much one of two memorable scenes in that whole movie. Yeah. Uh, Three. Sorry, I forgot about the rat. Um, (laughs) And, but other than that, you know, there's, they're very chaste. Um, You know, I think, you know, there's, like, Han and, and Giselle make out in the fifth movie. And then in the sixth, you know, they just sort of, like, hold hands they don't i don't even think they hold hands they just sort of like sit there in public places and you know are are clearly happy yeah which is funny and this is another way in which i think people fundamentally misunderstand the movies because so many of the car racing scenes start with a a close-up of someone's uh butt and then pull out right right and they have like women in skimpy outfits like all over the place um but that's not what the movie is really about like the actual characters in the movie aren't over sexualized this is just like the way that we relate to the things that we see it's part of what makes it different from us and that this isn't normal uh, it reminds me of that scene with bow wow in tokyo drift where they like have the secret party where all the models are hanging out mm-hmm. right which i felt like was kind of really sweet Right, like where it's like there's there's this party which has all these like literal fashion models that are there, and of course like Sean calls out, he's like they all kind of look like, and then Bow was like models, and, and of 
course, like we're we're laughing in the audience because it's like that's what they are. They're models, but it's like no, actually, in like they are diegetically models, (laughs) right? Like they are. This is a gathering of models, and they're all here because they travel from all around Asia to go to Tokyo for fashion shows, and they are lonely. (laughs) They don't know anybody in Tokyo. They're far away from home, Uh, and so. Um, you know, who do they go and hang out with? And then Bow Wow throws in something about people being too uh, timid to ask them out, which is not necessarily the best. But then he says, which well, I guess might be cultural in Japan as far as I know, but, but then he says, like, who do these women want to talk to? Like, the little, the little guy who makes them laugh. Right, like right, which is actually kind of sweet because you know he's you kind of do expect in that moment for for it to feel sort of like creepy and for him mm-hmm. to give some sort of like pickup artist line about like you know about how about you know how to sort of bed these models yeah. who by the way just like live in Han's garage yeah. so they're just <laughs> you know they're just around yeah exactly. Um, but you know he he I I don't know it's just sort of nice he's like yeah you know I just make him laugh and honestly I sort of get the sense that it doesn't work for him but yeah. that he enjoys it anyway exactly like I want to juxtapose it against that scene from the very beginning that I want to go back to that really really weird scene with the home improvement kid where yeah. it's just like and this is where where it's the classic Sean is the outsider and it's like the 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 jock has the expensive car and Sean has this cheap car that he's customized himself uh, because he knows how cars work and he's being taunted and bullied because he's like flirting with the girl but the most notable thing about that whole sequence is like my goodness this this girl i i would never treat somebody i love the way that these people treat each other oh it's awful it's awful it's like it's like if you win this race you know i'm going to go with you instead of with him and this isn't like revenge of the nerds where like we have a kind of tacit acceptance of chattel and sexual assault where it's like oh of course that's what would happen that's how men and women work like it feels wrong and it feels awful and it's like this is a terrible place to be um i mean i don't know yeah uh, halfway through the race when he's when the kid from uh home improvement is losing and she turns to him and she goes i thought you loved me yeah oh my goodness oh my and goodness it's it's unreal yeah and so it's like well okay clearly the 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 ritual of the woman like dressing up in kind of race outfit and hanging out next to the car right like in this sort of sexual object position isn't really just about being a sexual object because none of these women have sex in any of the movies um and, and the juxtaposition here is that like how much unpleasantness does Sean trying to get into this community in uh, wherever they are in the States, uh, how does that relate to the very chaste happiness and glee that Bow Wow has, right? Like, in this place where he belongs, right? And, and it's like, I mean, it, it shows, um, I mean, I think part of it, what it shows is that you can, you can find yourself at home in a place that is far from where you thought your home was, right? It's like, if you don't feel like you belong at home, maybe you belong somewhere else. But I think, I think the other part of it is just, um, I mean, this is part of why I love these, these movies having watched them is it's like, it's actually pretty subtle. And it's, it's like, it's like, you know, Bow Wow's fondness for just having the women around. It like affirms his as a, it affirms him as a person, um, to be, to have these women around him and approving of him. Um, but, it's juxtaposed against another situation in which we would expect the same thing to happen and it doesn't, right? And so it's like, no, this isn't about possessing the woman and having the beautiful woman make you feel good about yourself because you possess her. This is about like being around people who are nice to you. 
And yes, they happen to be dressed in a certain way. And yes, they happen to act in a certain way. But at the end of the day, like that's the thing that matters is that you share time together. You understand each other's circumstances. You're nice to each other. You respect each other, right? Like even if you're all hoochied out and playing that Japanese surf pop while you're doing – which – do you remember that movie? I remember that music. That took me back when I watched this movie. I remember – Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, like the, the sort of popularity of Japanese surf pop and like the, the late aughts or the mid-aughts. I remember going to a rock and roller skate in Queens where there was like a Japanese surf pop influenced band that played in like the middle of this cage while we all roller skated around them and it was a lot of fun <laughs> that was a good time uh, there were certain overthinkers who were there so i hope they're li- if they listen this far they got a little treat um and if you listen and you didn't see the movies uh well i don't know what to tell you yeah, um, i don't what are you what are you even doing with your life you need to go do you really like, i loved how right before fast six came out all of these movies were on sale on xbox video <laughs> Oh, that's how I watched a couple of them. Yeah, yeah, which is like... Um, I still call it the Zune Video Marketplace. (laughs) You know, I have... Everybody I know who still remembers Zune, I tremendously respect. And I think think that that's because they value things. I think it has to do with (laughs) Sass and the Furious. It's like, you respect the history that you had with Zune. Exactly. Uh, Like, I don't just forget about it. I could easily just leave it behind, just like Justin Lin could have left Michelle Rodriguez behind. But he didn't. He brought her back. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he and actually, I think apparently Vin Diesel had a lot to do with that. Because, uh, but they considered her an important part of the franchise, and you don't just you don't you don't leave family behind, even if they leave you behind. <laughs> that's definitely that's for sure. that's a quote from the movie. That is, in fact. Um, so um, we're coming up on. I feel oh, yeah, like I, just really quick. I want to say that it's interesting to me because I think you have you keep saying uh this isn't a 10 second race yeah and that's clearly sort of what it stuck out for you but for me it's always been i live my life a quarter mile at a time (laughs) like though that to me is like the that's the quote of the franchise that's the quote of the franchise well also i mean it's notable that that's what he says at the end of uh at the end of tokyo drift so it's like the most recent catchphrase that i've heard um, right. But yeah, but but that is interesting. There is a tension there, right, between this sort of like uh, um, this is you know this 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 is going to be longer than you think versus like I'm just going to be living in the present. Um, I mean, let's talk about that. Like, we, we're <clears throat> we're coming up on time, but uh, the final scene of Tokyo Drift is the most chronologically advanced scene we've seen. In, uh, yes. in the Fast and the Furious franchise. So assuming that the Saw guy, uh, who I guess will probably make a sort of revenge film where Jason Statham is like putting people through tests where they have to like drive a car through a swamp or something or he'll kill them yeah. or whatever. And, I, and it seems like maybe The Rock and Vin Diesel, it's going to be like their buddy cop movie. Okay. Um, you know, We'll see. Yeah. But yeah, I, I would assume I, it feels like a revenge movie. I think it's probably going to take place, if I had to make a. This is my guess. Yeah. In Cape Town. Really? Why yeah, Cape Town? Yeah, because they. Well, they haven't gone. They haven't gone to Africa yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cape Town is enough of a sort of recognizable international city, um, like Rio, like Tokyo, like London, um, to sort of host something like this. Um, and then they could, I don't know, they could set something on Shark Island. That would be pretty dope. Oh, wow. That's pretty awesome. But that's my guess. Okay. Um, 
Do, do you have a guess about where it might take place? Uh, well, I mean... So in the final scene of Tokyo Drift, we hear that Vin Diesel has been arriving in races and beating everyone in Asia. Like all of the major street racers in East Asia have been losing to Dom Toretto, who's been traveling through Asia for some reason. And then when he reaches uh, the Drift King in Tokyo, who is Lucas Black, of course, you know, and, and he says, I got nothing but time. Right, is what he says to him. Uh, and this is interesting because it doesn't really seem to match up with what we think is going to happen based on the Jason Satham scene previous to the credits of Fast and Furious 6, or Furious 6. Um, the easy explanation is they'll just retcon this away, right? And like, they'll, they'll, ma- I mean, I feel like it would be, it would be really great if Lucas Black were in this movie and if they tied that scene in, but I wouldn't be surprised if they just bailed on it because Justin Lin isn't at the helm anymore and they just, they don't decide to treat it with that level of respect. But I would be really interested and excited if, um, if, like, there's some reason why Dom has sort of gone AWOL and has, like, become a drifter at the beginning, you know, for some reason or something. I guess, why would he be racing everyone in Asia? That's really what I've been wrestling with, is how do I reconcile the scene at the end of Tokyo Drift with the demand from Jason Statham that, like, I'm coming for you, right? And you better be ready, and I'm going to kill everybody that you care about or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, if, like, yep. So, if... If Justin Lin was on it, right, we yeah. know how it would start. It would start with that scene in Tokyo Drift. It would just start yeah. there. That they would just be, be peeling scene. out. Yeah, exactly. And then you would see them have that race. You would see him race Sean. Um, and then, you know, you would find out why he's there. You know, he's, you know, looking to avenge Han's death and figure out what happened. Right. Um, and, you know, I. it doesn't. There is no reason for him to be in Asia, right? Because his whole thing is he wanted to go home. Right. And he finally got to go home at the end of six. Right. Except that somebody killed his family. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Jason Statham is in Asia. So maybe right. Jason Statham is like traveling around Asia and, and Dom Toretto is trying to chase him. But really, it's a red herring. And Jason Statham has been inside his house back home the whole time. And he's a puppet or something. I don't even know. Uh, I, I, I don't mean to get just distracted. I've never seen any of the Saw movies. Um, so I'm not, I'm not excited. Neither have I. Yeah. So we'll I, have to I, yeah it's a weird choice, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, we got to have faith that they'll work it out one way or the other. Uh, I'm hoping. But, Do uh, I? Do, I, do you believe? <laughs> well, let's let's leave that one to the commenters, listeners, uh, readers of the site, Fast and the Furious aficionados, Tokyo Drift enthusiasts, uh, Drift Kings, high and low, Sunny uh, Sunny Chiba fans who just like his Dick Tracy suit. Uh, what is you? Do you have faith in the future of Fast and the Furious? What are your feelings about the franchise as it is? About many issues that we raised, you know, about like different ideas of, of culture and uh, of epic and. And ethnicity and, and plurality of ethnicity and communication, uh, otherness. Uh, leave them in the comments. Start the conversation. You know, subscribe to our podcast. We'd love to see some more reviews on iTunes that give us a good five-star rating. Give us an honest one. Give us a four-star rating, a one-star rating. I am confident in the quality of this material. I know that you guys are having a good time listening to it because I'm feeling the vibes here. So, uh, so yeah, this is... Uh, <laughs> we, we've, we, we, have only, we, we will only get faster and furiouser from here. Uh, all that remains is to thank Hannah Full, our special guest. Thank you so 
much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is great because after I saw Fast 6, I I just want to keep talking about these movies and everyone else is bored of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are people who understand you out there and they are listening to this right now. And that's Uh, why you have the site and it's the best. Yeah, thank you so much. So will you hit the tagline with me, Hannah? Uh, Because from here on out, all that remains is to visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't deserve. deserve. I stuck my fist in the podcast first, so I had to say the prayer, I guess. Lord, thank us for MP3 compression, for Skype calls, for for friend guests, for, for, for people who come on and want to talk about their favorite movies, and for the commenters who, well, actually us when we get the details wrong.